Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. The hydropower that's being sought to solve New England's energy needs comes from massive dams hundreds of miles north in Quebec. They're a point of pride for some and a point of suffering for others. We here in Quebec, the little French Canadians, we were building those huge dams. Everything was lost without any kind of compensation. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. I'm John Dankowski. We'll explore what happens on the other end of that big power line. We'll also visit a neighborhood that fell on hard times. When you don't have the vitality of the neighborhood that existed before, there are other choices that are pretty, you know, much more in your face and much stronger than the hard work and sacrifice. And we'll go inside the factory building that could provide it new life. Plus, beyond clam chowder and lobster rolls, what's on New England's menu today? It's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region, with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This is Next. I'm John Dankosky. New England has aggressive goals for renewable energy, but our high energy costs here push us towards a balance between the cleanest sources and the least expensive. Right now, nuclear and natural gas account for the biggest chunk of our energy production, and we're adding more solar and wind. But increasingly, policymakers and utilities are looking at our neighbors to the north. A vast network of hydroelectric dams powers the province of Quebec with plenty of inexpensive energy to spare. These dams belong to Hydro-Quebec, an electric company owned by the Quebec government. They supply about 10% of the power used by the New England grid, and developers have plans to get even more. Several proposals were among the bids for a 20-year renewable energy contract with the state of Massachusetts, competing with wind and solar providers. At the end of January, Massachusetts picked just one project, the Northern Pass, a power line that would cut north to south across much of New Hampshire, owned and operated by the utility Eversource. But a week later, a decision by the New Hampshire Site Evaluation Committee brought those plans to a halt. The committee denied Eversource a permit for the project because it would, quote, unduly affect the orderly development of the region. With Eversource about to head into an extensive appeals process, Massachusetts has announced that they'll start negotiations on another project to connect to hydropower from Quebec, this time based in Maine. It seems likely that sooner or later, New England will be doing more business with Hydro-Quebec, but the story of that company is the story of a struggle over economic power, ancestral lands, and cultural pride that cuts deep in Quebec. Reporters Sam Evans-Brown and Hannah McCarthy traveled up north to bring us that story. They co-host Powerline. It's a series that's part of the NHPR podcast, Outside In. We talked to them before the latest round of news about Northern Pass. Sam and Hannah, welcome to Next. Thanks so much. Thanks. Glad to be here. Before we go all the way north to Canada, let's start, Sam, here in New England. And we've talked about this before in our program this idea that hydroelectric power from Quebec is a big part of the energy future here in New England. Can you talk a bit about who's making that argument that projects like Northern Pass are going to be good for New England? 
Well, you know, it's really it's really a lot of the policymakers at uh, the highest levels of all these state governments, and you hear them making it for different reasons. I mean, uh, Governor Paul LePage in Maine for a very long time has talked about connecting to the the quote unquote cheap hydropower uh, up north. Uh, you know, Vermont is is the one state in New England that has recognized hydropower as uh, actual renewable energy. Uh, and then in Massachusetts, there's this this law that was passed that has driven a procurement of nine point five ter terawatt hours of electricity uh, as, as a means of lowering their carbon emissions statewide. The, the idea of getting this power from up north, though, is not just going right across the border and having transmission lines from a project that creates energy just north of, of Vermont or New Hampshire or Maine, but you guys went a pretty long way. Can you give us a sense of the distances you traveled to see some of what Hydro-Quebec does? The first leg of the first trip that we took was a 14-hour drive up along the east coast of Quebec. And it's hard to communicate the scale of things. There's just so much open land. Um, And that second trip that we took was approximately, I would say with coffee breaks, 22 hours (laughs) north. (laughs) And you're going along these incredible landscapes and scents are shifting as well. I remember when we were on the Betsiamet River, the air was so perfumed that I said something to Sam, like, it smells like a candle, which tells you exactly how experienced I am in the outdoors. But, you know, the projects up north, they reflect the scale up there as well. For example, the Daniel Johnson Dam, that's a mile across. So it's huge. It's absolutely huge. It's enormous and creating an awful lot of electricity, which we'll talk about. Sam, I just have to ask you, though, we hear an awful lot about the cost of long-throw transmission lines through New England, no matter how we're generating, whether it's wind or solar or traditional, say, gas-fired plants. It's the building of the infrastructure to get power from one place to another that costs an awful lot of money. How is it, I don't know, cost-efficient to build transmission lines that go so far north to bring the electricity down? It's basically... uh premised on the idea that these lines are going to be used close to their maximum capacity. And and so we mentioned the 9.5 terawatt hour at, uh, figure at the top. And what that represents is, you know, n- about 95% utilization of these lines. And so that's what that's one of the things that actually makes the creation of power lines to connect to, say, uh, Maine's wind resources much trickier is because uh, a wind farm might be operating at 30% capacity versus versus the 95% you need in order to make these these power lines make financial sense. You mentioned just how massive these dams are. Let's get a little sense here. We've got tour guide Eric Hamill. This is the sound of standing underneath a turbine inside the Central Robert Bourassa, a massive dam complex that is way up in the middle of Quebec. This facility is one of the biggest in the world. Together, its two powerhouses have 22 of these turbines, and they put out more power than six nuclear reactors. So if one of these can power a city, um, then how much does the whole facility, you said it's... Oh, that way, this is the equivalent of a a town of uh, closely 1.6 million people. A a town of 1.6 million, that's an awful lot of people. How much of Quebec is powered by dams like these? 
Quebec gets 98, 99% of its electricity from hydropower. And, and, you know, when we talk about electricity in the Northeast, you're thinking about light bulbs and computers and smartphones. But in Quebec, the electricity is so inexpensive that something like 70% of the homes actually heat their, their space with, with electricity. So, uh, you know, that would be very expensive down here in New England. But because the rates are so low in Quebec, uh, many people have opted to install electric heat, even in that very cold climate. I think that what you just said maybe gets to the question of why hydropower is something that is so important to Quebec, but maybe something that's not as important as it once was to New England. We just don't have the types of resources that we used to. I mean, right now we're talking about tearing down old dams that haven't been in use for 100 years instead of building new ones, but they just keep building and keep generating hydropower up there. 3% of the world's fresh water is in the Quebec province. Uh, And and so... You know, they, they see this as their their sort of um, their patrimony. That's something there to to take advantage of to to further the wealth of the province. And let's talk through that that history. Hydro Quebec is an electric company, but it's also something that's a bit bigger than that. Hydro Quebec is part of the government of Quebec, and it's uniquely tied to the culture there in a way that you explore in this series that we don't really understand. I mean. We don't tend to have a positive relationship with our utility companies, but people in Quebec really love Hydro-Quebec. Tell us a bit about what you've learned. Yeah, so before the 50s and 60s, 1950s and 60s in Quebec, French Canadians, although they were the majority in Quebec, were kind of this economic underclass. So utility companies were really dominated by Anglican and American Canadian people. So with the establishment of the Parti Québécois and the nationalization of hydropower in the province, what you had happening was this massive power shift where suddenly French Canadians were in charge of their own massive utility. And it also meant that they were creating tons of jobs for these French Canadians to go work on these job sites where, you know, say they'd worked at a hydropower facility before, they would be working at a facility where they're language wasn't spoken. Now you had, you know, French being spoken at all of these job sites. I want to play a piece of tape from one of your stories uh, with the political science professor. His name is Daniel Saleh. He's from Concordia University in Montreal talking a bit about how the province came to own this uh, electric utility. When I was a kid in the 1960s, uh, they were building uh, the Manicouagan Dam. I can remember that it was something really to be proud of. Because we here in Quebec, the little French Canadians who were you know, just a generation before, were hardly able to amount to anything economically. We were building those huge dams. Mm. And you mentioned this a little bit, Hannah, but it really comes through in your reporting in your series that the everyday French Canadian when you ask them about Hydro-Quebec, there's, there's a real sense of pride, and, and we can't discount that. that. That's a real feeling that people in that province have. Yeah, it's a feeling today, too, and I think it was clear as we were doing some research into the history of Quebec, when you see the way that Quebecois people were once thought of in the province, to be able to have this utility that brought them into you know, enfranchisement of a sort. It is something that generation after generation is taught to think of as this source of great pride in the province. 
and then there's this this tension that you that you uncover, and it's a tension that honestly, Sam, those of us on the receiving end of this power don't think about at all. It's that this isn't necessarily a uh, a resource that people who speak French uh, claim for their own. This is a source that's been shared for hundreds and hundreds of years with native peoples. Before we play some tape, maybe you can talk a little bit about how you started to delve into that relationship and that tension between um, Quebec and the native people of the region. What what we found is that as I started to reach out to native groups, you know, um, the, there's an overarching body that, that represents sort of all native people in Quebec. I was funneled to the Pessimit. So, so the Pessimit hosted the first uh, mega project that Hydro-Quebec built, the Manic Utard mega project. And it, in a lot of ways, shows this sort of sharp divide between the way things used to be done in the province of Quebec and the way things were done today. Mm. Let's actually listen to, this is uh, Edgar Sanange. He's uh, an elder from the, the Pessimit band of, of the Innu people. Uh, the Pessimit live on the north shore of St. Lawrence in the summertime, but in the winter, they travel of hundreds of miles up these rivers to hunt and trap. Let's, let's listen. Everything has, has been drowned. They lost uh, all their gears. Their camps were, were flooded. Uh, the, their equipment for to hunting equipment, trapping equipment was flooded. Their canoes, uh, the, the nets to, to, to fish for, for, for living, for the living of their family. Everything was lost without any kind of compensation. Hmm. Sam, what more can you tell us about this history? It, it sounds as though this this was a, a group of people who were taken by surprise uh, by this enormous building project. Yeah, we we spoke to a room full of elders of the Pessimist community, and and basically what they say is that they were never notified in any way that these projects were going to be built, and so they they found them by uh, sort of heading upstream in the fall and coming across the construction sites uh, in the midst of their of their trip up into their winter hunting and trapping territories. Um, and they were never offered any compensation until until after the projects were built. And then when that compensation deal came, they were offered one hundred and fifty thousand Canadian dollars, uh, which came out to one hundred and sixteen dollars per person in the community um, for all damages past, present and future. And and that that deal is the subject of a lawsuit today, which has been ongoing for uh, nearly 20 years. And have they been active? Have have tribal members been active today in trying to get Northern Pass, this big project that would so benefit Hydro-Quebec and, and send energy our way? Have they been involved in this uh, dispute at all? Yeah, so so they have used the Northern Pass project uh, as as a way to try to gain visibility for for their cause. They've they've tried very hard to make a connection between this uh, the increase in exports to New England and and the uh, the issues that they are working on today in their home territory, uh, which are essentially, you know, salmon habitat on the Betsimet River, uh, issues resulting in the raising of the reservoir levels on the Maniquagon Reservoir. Um, they had they had a great deal of flooding this October, which they also lay at the feet of Hydro-Quebec. And, and every time one of these issues uh, comes up, they issue a press release in which they, they uh, try to link it to the, the increase in exports to New England. 
So, Hannah, though, you learned that their experience, the pessimist experience, isn't the same type of experience that all of the the First Nations groups have had. What what did you find out about the way Hydro-Quebec has dealt with with other tribal groups? We also reported on another First Nations group called the Crees, and specifically the James Bay Crees. Um, And they first entered arguments with Hydro-Quebec while a project was being built on their territory as well. You know, this was only two years after the pessimists struck that first sore deal of their own. The difference with the Crees was that they banded together and they brought Hydro-Quebec to court. And over the course of a lot of negotiating, they developed what became this massive 400-page agreement. And this is just full of provisions for you know, local government and education and social services and future rights to negotiations and also compensation for $135 million. And then when they were dissatisfied with the way that Hydro-Quebec implemented that, they launched a whole other series of protests that resulted in another landmark deal, which included $3.5 billion worth of compensation. At least from what they're telling you today, Hydro-Quebec says they're they're acting as a different type of company than the one that took a lot of this land, worked against the interests of some First Nations groups back in the 1960s. You have here Sonia Burgess. She works for Hydro-Quebec way out in the eastern part of the province where they're building the latest mega project. Here she talks a little bit about the work that they're trying to do with tribal communities there. My job is to ensure that the agreement signed by the people uh, of Equinichit um, and uh, the, the hydro objectives are met. They don't put up with any grab from hydro, you know? They, they don't, they don't. And that's okay. They, they, with, with every uh, partnership, you know, you, you, you want something, they want something, and we communicate. Do you guys get the sense that that's actually what's happening on the ground, that the the tribal groups are able to communicate with Hydro-Quebec and they're really hearing their concerns? I would say in terms of Hydro-Quebec side of things, you know, are they doing more than they've ever done before to communicate with and touch base with these First Nations communities? Yes. Uh, But especially in terms of the pessimist, whether or not these First Nations people are getting what they want from Hydro-Quebec, I think is a little bit of a murkier question because they're so entrenched in all of their past grievances with the company. I'm wondering, Sam, if you feel as though the arguments that have been raised by by Native peoples in your series and that have been made over decades are, are resonating at all with people here in New England who are making decisions about a project like Northern Pass and whether or not we should be taking uh, electricity that's coming from uh, an area that's been in so much dispute. I've talked to you about this before. I think about the place where I grew up in western Pennsylvania and, and West Virginia where an awful lot of open farmland is being fracked for cheap natural gas. And when we expand natural gas here, we often say, well, it's a cheap commodity. But the fact of the matter is, is that something's got to happen on the other end of it. So is, is any of these questions about what's happening on the other end of hydro, is it resonating at all in New Hampshire today? 
Well, I'd say the answer to that is yes and no. And and uh, where you do see it resonating is with the the opponents to these power lines. They uh, are are very happy to take the messages that that native communities in in Quebec uh, and other provinces supply to them and use them and integrate them into their messaging as part of their continued opposition to these projects. Uh, however, I think what I'm hearing from policymakers is that you know really that. That is a decision to be left to Quebec. Sam Evans-Brown is host of Outside In. Hannah McCarthy is producer and co-host for this series. Thank you both so much for joining us and for bringing us these stories. I really appreciate it. Thank you, John. Thanks. You can find all four episodes of Outside In's special series, Powerline, along with photos, maps, and videos at outsideinradio.org slash powerline. You can also subscribe to Outside In and to this program, by the way, wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up, an old factory in a low-income neighborhood gets a new life. And this time, it's not going to be filled with artist studios or high-end lofts. We'll find out what it is next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters, who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. Many New England cities used to be manufacturing hubs. Workers lived near where they worked, and they supported the other businesses that sprung up around them. Today, old factories are puzzles to solve. What do we do with these things? Some can retain a bit of small manufacturing. Others are converted into high-end lofts, artist studios, even world-class art museums like Mass Mocha in North Adams, Massachusetts. The building that housed the Swift factory is tucked into a residential section of Hartford's North End neighborhood. And its industrial history is, well, it's a bit fancier than that of many textile or machinery mills in the region. Gold leaf was manufactured here for over 100 years. Gold leaf is thin, delicate, paper-like material but it is real gold. Leaf produced at Swift adorned the dome atop the Connecticut Capitol building and decorated the lettering on the sides of local fire trucks. The company was owned by a white family, the Swifts, and the neighborhood, which had mostly white immigrant residents early in the 1900s, gradually became African-American and West Indian. It still is today. The Swift factory closed in 2005. A nonprofit called Community Solutions took ownership in 2010, and they surveyed the neighborhood to figure out what to do with this site. North End residents said, well, they want jobs. The unemployment rate is roughly 21%. Health is also a major concern. Residents suffer from high rates of chronic disease. So on a visit last summer, I spoke with John Thomas, the project's community engagement manager, about what's to come. We started off by getting a feel for the neighborhood. So we're in Northeast Hartford. Uh, in spite of what the news reports say, uh, we're not afraid to live here. Uh, it's still a very, you know, vibrant community with, you know, I have very strong ties here. I'm, you know, most of the people I know are hardworking people. In spite of the fact that, you know, you know, I like to say this about this community. If you're looking for trouble, you can find it very easily. But you, you know, most of the time, Trouble won't find you here. I'm the son of uh, Georgians who came up here, you know, not the country Georgia, but <laughs> South Georgia uh, in, in the southern United States. Hardworking people, uh, sharecroppers, uh, came off of farms and came up here and looking for a better opportunity in the factories in the industrial northeast. 
and uh, came here, found employment here, uh, but shortly thereafter, uh, because of the mobility of people uh, that was created through the very same jobs, uh, once that mobility was realized, people pretty much moved out of, of the community and the, uh, the businesses went with them. Mm -hmm. With that gone, you know, we've had some very good opportunities for education, but when you don't have the vitality of the neighborhood that existed before, there are other choices that are pretty, you know, much more in your face and much stronger than the hard work and sacrifice. You know, you have an illicit trade that pretty much provides opportunity where there is none. You got people who, who turn to it and uh, over time, you know, we're talking 30 years of that trade entrenched in our communities. Over time, that becomes a, a viable option for people who would otherwise not have an opportunity to quote unquote succeed. After the factory closed, Thomas says people who live around here thought about what they might do with the space, but without money, those ideas couldn't really go anywhere. Now the Community Solutions is renovating the building, he says some residents are still skeptical. You know, in a neighborhood like this that redlining occurred for uh, occurred in where people couldn't get bank loans, couldn't get the support, you pretty much assume that that's the state of things. So you don't look for opportunities that you believe don't exist. And then when, you know, a group of, you know, and I'm a community engagement person, so to some people I'm Uncle Tom. To some people, you know, I'm just a poster boy for the, the powerful white people who took over the building. And so my, a major part of my job is to spread accurate information about the struggle that even this group of white people <laughs> who I work with and for, you know, our struggle. And not just the struggle of me working for this group, but the community struggle to realize the fact that this is a 30 plus million dollar uh, investment in a community that has not been invested in, in over 30, 30 years. Tell us about the opportunities that we'll begin to see right based around this building that's going to help to do some of what you hope to do. So the matrix of development that Community Solutions is offering here involves, you know, bringing food production um, operations to the site. You know, if I can mention Bears uh, Barbecue, we're speaking with them to come in as a tenant and Bears hires, you know, a high percentage of formerly incarcerated people. And so that opportunity is, is uh, central to what we want to do here. Uh, a health center for pediatric health is another idea that we have here. Um, indoor growing, some kind of indoor growing operation. A shared office space. I just want to ask you one more thing about that. So many of, of the ideas that you just laid out are things that in all sorts of communities around Connecticut, around New England, uh, people are putting in uh, old factory buildings like this because the space is so great. But I think this focus on food is really interesting. And I, I wonder if you can talk about that, whether it's indoor growing of things or, or large-scale production of food. I mean, talk about why food is so integral to this. Well, we all have to eat, right? Food is an industry that isn't going to go anywhere. I can say as African-Americans and Latinos, all people, everyone has a food narrative. So the African-American food narrative is you know, closely tied to what people are actually doing here.
Um, so now I believe that we can reclaim that narrative in all of its aspects, you know, even the soul food aspect. And I, I can tell you, you know, I realized short, a short while ago that I could eat myself to health. And I'm dealing with people with high blood pressure, obesity. You know, people don't realize that chronic illness is killing more people in this neighborhood than the bullets that fly around here due to arguments. Architect Patrick McKenna is the project manager. He says there's another reason for the focus on food. Jobs in the food business, in the food sector, are accessible to people in this neighborhood who might not have finished high school or might have other barriers to employment. The high school graduation rate here is only about 38 uh, percent. So there's no point in us bringing in high-tech manufacturing jobs that you need master's degrees. Um, jobs in kitchens and in restaurants are available to people in this community. McKenna is also in charge of giving tours of the factory, a two-story building that was expanded bit by bit from 1895 to 1948. And as we'll see, there's a lot of work to be done before the building can be turned into a food hub. Holes in the floor need to be patched, lead paint and oil needs to be removed for starters. But outside on the lawn next to the building, there's already something food-related going on, a vegetable garden. The Hartford Food System run an urban farm here. They've been growing on this site um, for six years now. Um, <clears throat> so they, they grow here, they put up a greenhouse a couple of years ago, and they use the basement of our office as storage for their mobile market. It's an old school bus that's painted and drives around the neighborhoods selling produce. So I, I'm not personally a, with my hands <laughs> in the dirt, but they have garlic over on the far side, which they're, they're just started to harvest. You can see it kind of on the table there. Uh, there's a lot of greens here, um, kales and collards. We head back inside to the echoey industrial space of the Swift factory. It's pretty rough. Broken windows, peeling paint, debris everywhere. History, too. So, um, with it being a gold leaf factory, when you've got gold, you need vaults. This is one of the vaults. So if you want to come around here, watch your step. Um, there's some broken glass and uneven floors. They left. Um, this is the, the big daddy vault, I like to call it. The, the walls are over two feet thick. And the, you know, that, like an elevator shaft would be now, this was built you know, before the building and then the building was built around it. You're welcome to take a look inside, but um, we're pretty sure they didn't leave anything lying around. <laughs> Yes, it's a, it's, it's a pretty cool space. It's <laughs> a really cool space. So, uh, you know, as part of the refurbishment, obviously we're going to keep the vault. There's, even if we wanted to, we, we, we couldn't get rid of this There's vault. <laughs> Boy, as an architect, you must be just excited as hell. This must be just a, a playland of things to, to look at, play with, figure out how to make work. Yeah, yeah no, I, I, I like to think of as architecture as this, you know, as I mentioned, kind of solving these three-dimensional puzzles, and I'm a, I'm a sucker for kind of old industrial buildings. So yeah, I'm, I'm super excited by it, you know. The vault, of course, was important for a business that's all about gold. McKenna takes us to a vast, high-ceilinged room with some hulking machinery still in it. So this is the gold leafing department. Um, the gold was taken out of the vault that we were just in and it was brought over to the furnace here, the little building, a uh, little machine in the corner. It was melted there. It was extruded and rolled out on, on a series of rollers that they've taken away. And uh, it was rolled out to a ribbon that was about an inch wide and a thousandth of an inch thick. And they, they cut that into one by one inch squares and then they started to work on it and they, they layered it up on parchment paper, four by four inch parchment paper. And they had a stack maybe, you know, three quarters of an inch to an inch high, and it was beaten by a series of mechanical hammers. Um, they, they beat that gold 
until um, that one by one inch square filled the four by four inch square. Mm. Uh, they took it apart, peeled it apart, cut up the gold into one by one inch squares again, layered it up on four by four inch parchment paper again, and then repeated that process three times until that gold was three millionths of an inch thick. So you could hold it up and see light through it, even though there would be no holes in it. Um, and so then they took that and they kind of pressed it and made it into a little book. And that was the, the product that was used on the state capitol buildings, signage and railroad companies. That gold leaf was handled by workers like Anna Smith. She's here for a tour too. It's the first time she's been inside since she worked here in the early 1980s. Don't forget my name is Anna. A lot of people doesn't think that I was really a black person. Smith says when she worked here, the factory management made sure workers didn't take any product home with them at the end of the day. Before they went home, workers had to pass through a detector with a built-in fan, known as the blower. You're not leaving this place without the blower on you. If that bell go off, you're going to stay until it clears. And those are one of the hard days I had because I had a babysitter. I had to stay here. I'm supposed to be off at 4. I had to stay here about 6 o'clock. And they finally found it in my eyelash. <laughs> One little flick, and they wouldn't let me go. Did, can I ask you a question, ma'am? I'm John, by the way. Hi. Anna. It's very good to meet you. Did you get a feeling, like through that whole process, that you were trusted or that someone was always looking at you and all the other people who were working here thinking that you were trying to get away with something? At first, you are not trusted because they were someone always going by and looking. Later, I felt trusted. That's interesting. But we were a watch yeah. because we did not know we were working with gold. We, it didn't look, it was so thin. <laughs> it was on plastic molds that came about this big square. It, it looked like thin, thin paper. Did you, did you know Bob Swift? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So he's been back and he's told us some of the stories and I, we kind of heard this and thought it was an urban legend, but Bob Swift kind of backed it up and he said that before, you know, that gold was so thin, as you, as you mentioned, that it could be blown into any little crevice. Yes. Um, but before they donated the building to us, they cut up the flooring in three locations where they handled the gold. So in the gold leafing department down there, up here, and then in the second floor of building two, um, where mm -hmm. they had the museum, they burned the flooring here um, in the in the building at the in, in building six and they sent that ash away to get processed and they got over two hundred thousand dollars worth of gold out of the floorboards. Wow. Anna Smith is African-American and she tells us that she never saw another black person working at the factory when she was there. She lived in another neighborhood at the time and the fact that she was able to get a job here while people across the street couldn't get hired created tension. I was questioned every day. Matter of fact, they throw stones at us one day um, and asked us, how did we get in, how did I get in here? My girlfriend lived right across the street and she was just, she didn't say she was mad, but she let me know she was angry. Mm. And what did I say? And I'm serious. I just said, I need a job. My name is this. I'm pretty quick with my hands. With Anna Smith and her husband joining along, we make our way to the last stop on the tour. This is the space that's going to be rented by a local upscale barbecue joint. So here again, you know, the building style changes. We've got a concrete floor, we've got a steel roof with steel trusses. 
And uh, you can see the shinier metal deck where we replaced some of the roof. So Bears Barbecue are going to have the first floor and the second floor of this space. They're going to make the sides and sauces for their restaurant. So no, no wow. retail here. Um, <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, yeah. So Bears want to come in here because they want to employ people from the neighborhood. So the I idea is the the idea is you know to bring in industry here that's gonna that's gonna uh, benefit the, the people who live around it. Um, Bears already employ a number of people from this neighborhood. Like Community Solutions is planning to begin renovations at the Swift Factory building this spring. For pictures from our trip last summer, go to nextnewengland.org. Coming up, the foods of New England, from the humble to the sublime. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. Local has become the most important word in the world of New England food. Think local grass-fed beef or locally made sheep's milk cheese, even the restaurants that proudly name the farmers that grow their food locally. Amy Traverso is a senior food editor for Yankee Magazine and NewEngland.com, and she's been watching these trends for years. She's an expert in New England food and an advocate for it. She says chefs and food producers are challenging the notion that New England's traditional foods are stodgy and boring. Think dishes like lobster on black rice with brown butter aioli or baked beans with pomegranate molasses. Traverso is also in charge of giving out Yankee Magazine's annual Editor's Choice Food Awards, now five years in the running. The winners are announced each fall in time for the holiday season, and I spoke with Amy in December of last year. Amy, welcome to Next. Thanks for having me. It sounds like a, a fun job. Can you tell us what the senior food editor of Yankee Magazine gets to do? Yeah, you know, I almost feel guilty talking about it because <laughs> it is a really, really fun job. So I cover all the food content for Yankee and our uh, website, NewEngland.com. It's not a lot of intensive restaurant reviews. It's more writing about kind of the quirky New Englandy iconic places. When you say New Englandy, what do you mean? What are you thinking about when you think of New Englandy food? With everything we do with Yankee, we want our coverage to have this really strong sense of place because we know New England lives in people's imaginations, even if they're not living here. Half of our readers live outside of the region. So this is a place where people have deep emotional connections to. So I'm looking for any kind of a restaurant that somehow uh, sort of pulls that cord. Um, one of the things that I think is exciting about food in New England right now is I see chefs kind of re-embracing some of those traditional foods again um, without shame <laughs> and with a, a bit of a modern spirit, maybe doing modern interpretations of these dishes that I think for a long time people felt were a little bit stodgy and uninteresting. Mm. Maybe you can talk a bit more about that, about how you make something that many people feel is stodgy and uninteresting, the traditional New England cuisine. How do you make it alive for the 21st century? I think of this as the next generation of eating locally. So, um, you know, whereas chefs for a while were cooking for the most part in sort of a Mediterranean, French, Italian or, you know, Northern Californian style in New England, but using locally grown ingredients, 
I think now they're taking it to the next level and saying, well, what are the flavors of this region and how can I work them in? I mean, there's a chef named Will Gilson in Cambridge who has a restaurant called Puritan and Company. He takes Moxie, that famous sort of controversial main soda that's like a a more bitter Coca-Cola. I actually really like it, but, um, you know, not everybody does. He glazes lamb belly in a moxie glaze, which is kind of a fun interpretation. He also did a salad and he incorporated Johnny Cakes in this salad. We're really seeing it all over. And I'm excited about it because I think, you know, in the South, people have long taken real pride in the diverse culinary heritage of the region. And in New England, we have a very diverse, I mean, we have native foods, we have Portuguese and Italian foods, which hugely influenced the way we eat. Um, I mean, you look at the classic Rhode Island stuffy. I love stuffies. I seek them out every summer, which is a stuffed quahog with some sort of bready dressing and uh, usually chopped clams, some herbs, and usually chorizo or chorice, as they say in Rhode Island. Um, which is, you know, a Portuguese sausage. And that is very much a classic New England dish at this point, but it definitely has Portuguese roots. And is that something that you think is changing even more as New England diversifies? I mean, on our program, one of the things we chart is this changing face of New England with so many people coming from all over the world, changing the the demographic makeup of our region. Do you see it changing substantially in the food as well? Absolutely. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, while I'm talking about this, um, this kind of resurgence of finding inspiration in, in traditional New England foods or historic New England foods, these dishes are on the same menu as they're on the same menu that are featuring lots of global flavors. Well, we've talked a little bit about the the current state of New England cuisine and maybe a little bit about the future. I, I do have to ask you a historical question. Why exactly is Boston Beantown? Oh, okay. So Boston is Beantown because um, baked beans, which were, I should say, a technique that really was adopted from Native Americans. Baked beans became such a staple food and were so abundant. And molasses, of course, was very abundant in Boston because it was the center of the the triangle trade that exchanged sugar, rum, and slaves uh, to our shame. Molasses was a byproduct of that sugar processing, and so it was abundant in Boston. Um, And so you have a lot of beans, you have a lot of molasses, and you have this tradition of cooking beans over a long period of time in an oven after you've baked the bread. Also, early New Englanders tended to observe the Sabbath in a in a more uh, a stricter way, which meant no work on Sunday. And so baked beans were something you could put in the oven uh, and allow to cook all day or overnight and eat on Sunday without uh, doing what would be considered work um, by religious authorities. Hmm. We've talked in the past about how different states or different parts of New England have different ways of preparing some very traditional New England foods. I mean, a famous one is the lobster roll. In in yeah. Maine, they they make it with mayonnaise for some reason. And in, in here in Connecticut, <laughs> oh, I know here, where your loyalties here, are. Here in Connecticut, we, we make it in a in a hot buttered roll. It's a very different style, and there's, of course, variations in, in chowders. What are some other examples of of some famous foods around New England in which you might find something a little different in one place than another. So let's see. Well, we see, for example, you know, in Connecticut, I'm a Connecticut native. um, We have the grinder. Other people call it the Subway sandwich. We call it the grinder. Um, 
in Portland, Maine, they have what's called the Italian sandwich, um, which is basically a sub with Italian cold cuts. Then there's variations on pizza. You've got your New England a pizza, which is, you know, in traditionally cooked in a charcoal oven, um, pretty well done. Uh, you would say charred, not burned. Um, often, you know, with um, with a really nice tangy tomato sauce. Whereas, you know, south of Boston, you have something called bar pizza, which is like a really delicious uh, tradition on the South Shore. It's kind of greasy and fluffy, but crisp bottom. Do you have a, a weirdest food that you found as you travel New England, something that is particularly New England, but also kind of strange? You know, this isn't strange to me because I grew up here, but I was once... Um, having dinner with a couple of Brits who are really well-traveled. They go all over the world and they eat everything. And we were at the Union Oyster House in Boston because they wanted to have that like classic New England thing. And they ordered steamers and and the, the guy took out his notebook and he wrote down in great detail this bizarre food that he was eating. And it hadn't occurred to me how weird steamers are. When you think about it, I mean, the weird neck and the, the the rinsing off, the sand and then the butter. I mean, it's it's an odd kind of food. Let's talk about these New England Food Awards. Tell us about the criteria that, that you have. What is it you're looking for? The idea of the Food Awards is, you know, Restaurants are really only half of the equation of what makes New England such a great place to live and eat. Um, The other half is ingredients. And whether that's gorgeous produce or seafood that we're getting or meat or, you know, any of the kind of farmed or raised ingredients, but also the products, the made ingredients, particularly ones that are made in smaller scales by um, really talented artisans who are in it for the love and in it maybe to save a family farm. For example, um, this year, this is one story that I, I find really charming. Um, there is a little chocolate shop called Vicuña Chocolate. Um, it's in Peterborough, New Hampshire. And a young woman named Neely Cohen, who's a really talented pastry chef, she actually won Food Network Sweet Genius competition a few years ago. She opened a bean-to-bar chocolate shop. And bean-to-bar means you're literally starting with beans imported from somewhere in the equatorial regions of the world, and you are doing the whole blending, tempering, sorting, cracking, winnowing process. Um, Neely created this company, was making wonderful chocolates. And this past year, she decided to, uh, she needed to kind of stretch her wings and she moved overseas and sold the business to these two recent high school grads. They, along with their families, have bought this business and are, are keeping the bean to bar thing going and making really wonderful chocolate. So I love finding these little businesses that are working really hard, especially when it's like a cheese because for a lot of New England uh, dairy farmers, it's really hard to make a living simply producing milk that you're selling on the commodity market. And a lot of farmers have found the only way to keep a dairy business going is to have a value-added product like cheese, which you can sell for more money. Um, and yes, these cheeses are not cheap. This is not supermarket, you know, foil-wrapped kind of Uh, American style cheese. But when you buy a quarter of a pound of this cheese for $5, you're not only supporting the making of some a delicious product, but you're keeping a farm alive, you're keeping green space in our New England landscape, which we we value so much. Do do you think that there's such a thing as authenticity in New England cuisine? Or is that kind of gone by the wayside with with all of the people coming from all over the world changing the way in which we eat and think about food? I think there is still a lot of authenticity. I mean, it's a tricky word, you know, what what is authentic? And we could do a whole segment on that. But um, boy, on my travels, I 
will wander into, you know, a, a diner that uh, the same family's been operating for 60 years and they've mastered grape nut pudding. Just this weekend, I was in Connecticut eating uh, hamburgers at Shady Glen or cheeseburgers where they, you know, melt the cheese on the griddle. They kind of drape the cheese over the cheeseburger so that the cheese actually hits the griddle and cooks and becomes crisp and brown. And it's like almost like a chip. And they've been doing this since the 40s. That to me is a totally authentic experience. Anything that people are cooking from a tradition, um, to me, feels authentic. I think when you get into um, higher-end dining, I think it gets a little slipperier if people are cooking from, you know, a multitude of global influences and trying to kind of keep up with food trends and do what do what is expected of a fine dining restaurant. I mean, it, it again, it depends on how you define authenticity. I think it's authentic talent, authentic technique, really great ingredients, but maybe it's not that same kind of warm bath feeling you get when you go to a place that is cooking from a longstanding tradition. I've got one last very unfair question to ask you, which is if let's say you were cast out of New England, you couldn't live here and be the senior food editor for Yankee Magazine and you had to live elsewhere and you wanted to have one last really New Englandy bite of food, what would it be? So last summer, uh, summer before last, I went on a a uh, six-day road trip up the Maine coast in an RV with my family in search of the best lobster roll in Maine. And um, the, the place that sort of really hit it for me was McClune's Lobster in uh, South Thomaston, Maine. It's in this it's sort of mid-coast Maine near Rockland and Camden. And it is, if you were to close your eyes and imagine the platonic ideal of a lobster shack on a cove where the boats are coming in with fresh lobster and there's a view of islands and the sun sparkling on the water. So it'd be like moxie, a lobster roll, and a slice of pie. That that would be it for me. And then I'd cry, and then I'd be on my way. (laughs) It sounds pretty good. Uh, Amy Traverso, senior food editor, Yankee Magazine. She's judge of the fifth annual Yankee Editor's Choice Food Awards, and we'll have more information on our website, nextnewengland.org. Amy, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. This has been fun. Thanks. To see a slideshow of the winners and learn more about the Food Awards, visit our website. That's nextnewengland.org. Next is produced at WNPR by Andrew Moraskin. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. Production help this week from Ian Fox. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. Hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. And thanks to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. Follow us on Twitter at Next New England to keep up with news from the region throughout the week. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwabstone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York and the Melville Charitable Trust. Next is powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and Connecticut Public Radio.